Well, if you could find your seat, that would be wonderful. Thank you guys so much for being here. My name's Daniel. I get the opportunity of serving as lead pastor if it's your first time or I haven't had the opportunity to meet you. I'd love to have that chance after the service. We're in a series called Pitfalls, walking through the first nine chapters in the book of Proverbs. And the definition of a pitfall is an unforeseen trap or danger. And in this uh, book of Proverbs, this father is writing this book to his son to help him avoid the pit, if you will. That there's many areas in our, of our lives where there are these unforeseen traps, these dangers in that come about in our lives. And in Proverbs chapter seven, you've already been forewarned, but let me warn you once again that in chapter seven, this father is talking to his son about desire. And specifically, he uses the illustration of a story around sexual desire. And if you've been around Journey for some time, of, or just in the past couple of weeks, you'd be like, haven't we already heard this once? Because a couple of weeks ago, Nathan taught us from Proverbs chapter five, which also is a chapter that deals with sexual faithfulness, the beauty that's in the context of marriage and the warnings against adultery. And this chapter is similar, but yet it's very different. And so if you have a copy of God's word, meet me in Proverbs chapter seven. And as we get there, I'm gonna remind you about this mini section that we've been in, in Proverbs chapters five, six, and seven, and really picking up on this mini section in Proverbs. In chapters five and six, the father specifically teaches through what I'm gonna call the method of telling, where the father wants to tell the son the right and the wrong thing to do. And many of you, some of you are school teachers or educators or your parents or you just in your job, you have to regularly teach people what to do and what not to do, how to correctly fill out a form, how not to do that. But in good uh, father-like fashion, in Proverbs chapter seven, what ends up happening is the father shifts his method of teaching. He shifts from a let me tell you to a let me show you. Like, and this is good father fashion as well. Cause like my dad, when I was growing up, uh, he would teach me a lot of just practical life skills. But when we would get to something super practical, he wouldn't want to tell me about it. He'd want to show me it. Like if we were uh, learning, if I was learning how to change the oil in my truck for the very first time, my dad didn't gr pull out a dry erase board, sit me down in the living room and be like, all right, son, listen, there's gonna be this plug. You're gonna undo it. And then all of a sudden this black stuff's gonna come out. No, he would take me out to the garage and say, son, let me, let me show you how to do this. And one of my favorite things my dad ever showed me how to do, which I still use on a regular basis. You can find me on summer nights um, on my back porch around this solo stove with fire. I love fire. I was told often as a kid, don't play with fire, you'll pee the bed. But you know, that's all right. I've never done that either. So anyways, but in building a campfire, when my dad taught me, I still remember he would walk through the important steps in building a campfire. You need dry wood, you need a good airflow, oxygen, a heat source, and all these different things. But there's many ways to build a campfire. I don't know if you've ever Googled this, but I have. And you can, there's all these different ways to build a campfire. Like there's this cone approach or this TP pyramid, whatever you want to call it. But you got to be really skilled and coordinated to hold all this wood up and light it on fire and trust that it's not going to fall down and just, you know, 
know, burn your house down or something. So I don't do that at all. There, there's a star approach where you kind of lay your wood out like this and you light a fire and it's like a slow burn. But I like simple. I want to know what's going to be the most effective way to build a fire, to, to roast food, smoke barbecue, whatever you're doing, or just enjoy the warmth of it. And so there's this approach called the log cabin approach which I don't know who's trying to burn down a log cabin, but that's exactly what it's called. Where you lay two slats of wood one direction and you just begin to alternate and you stack it up there as long as you have good dry wood and you have good airflow, this causes it and you can lay down some thrush and as long as you have your wood right and it'll not fall over, right? And so you just lay it like that, you get it stacked, you have it stable, you light a fire and you enjoy a good firewood. And my dad showed me how to do this. In Proverbs chapter 7, this father to this son is going to show him exactly what he is talking about when it comes to his desire. So if you have a copy of God's word, Proverbs 7 verse 1, it goes like this. He says, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Notice here, if you have a copy of God's word and you like writing in it or underlining, notice those three body parts that are mentioned in Proverbs chapter seven, verses one through three. The eye, the fingers, and the heart. The eye is the line of sight. That's where you see. That's what you focus on in, uh, in life. That's what you use in your life to focus on things. But this phrase, apple of your eye, is literally a phrase that means what's most valuable. You've probably used this. It's like, you're the apple of my eye. You've seen it on some Hallmark card or something like that. And so the father in this is, is telling his son, focus on my commandments, as well as telling him in this one phrase, keep my words as the most valuable, treasured thing in your life. And then he moves to the fingers, which is a really a, a nod to Deuteronomy chapter six, where Moses instructs the people of God to bind the commandments to their hands. And they would put them in a small box and bind them to their hands so that in all their activity, they would be reminded at what God had told them, how they were instructed to live. They would be reminded of that. So he moves from the line of sight or the focus center to the activity in this regard. And in, in this, in Deuteronomy chapter six, it's a nod to family discipleship. And Proverbs 6.20 picks up on this as well, where he says that, my son, keep your father's commandments, forsake not your mother's teaching. That both the fathers and the mothers and all are valued in the family of God to lean into discipleship. So we have the eyes, we have the fingers, so the thought life, the activity. And then finally he says, write them on the tablet of your heart. We have the heart. We've talked about it multiple weeks that the heart is the center of the person, but it's also representative of the whole person, all the wants, all the desires. It's the core of who they are. And this is why the father specifically in this and where we get the next two verses in verses four and five, isn't concerned first with telling him what to do and what not to do but he's rather concerned about what he must want, which is why he says this, verse four. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Notice that the father directs his whole self, all of his sights, all of his actions, all of his desires to do this. 
call out. That literal word means to shout her down. Shout her down. And this word intimate is literally used only one other time in the Old Testament to talk about a relative. So what is the father trying to say in these first five verses? He is trying to get the son to understand that his following of God or our discipleship to Jesus is an undivided union. That it takes all of us, all of our thoughts, all of our actions, and all of our desires to do this thing. And then using the word relative and, and sister in this regard, is he saying you should have wisdom so close to you. They're like related that wisdom is related to you, that you want it. You want a relationship with it. You keep it as the apple of your eye. It's, it's always around your finger. So even in the smallest activity, you're reminded of it. That you write it on the tablet of your heart, that you desire it, you want it. Nathan and Kevin have taught in this series as well. And, and they pointed out both in the respective ways that our issue in discipleship is not that we don't have wisdom accessible to us. But rather, too often, the sad reality is, is we don't want it. We don't desire it. We don't think we actually need it. And Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith, an author, he writes this about discipleship. He says, discipleship is a rehabituation of your loves grounded in erotic telos end in the creator himself. It's us desiring. It's us wanting God's truth God's will and God's way over our life in every way possible. So the question that you must be asking at this point is, is, okay, that's great, but why in the world now is the father getting ready to transition to sexual desire and sexual expression and, and why is he bringing all this up? Well, the reality is, is this truth is that our sexual expression and sexual sin is usually pointing to something else. It's usually pointing to something else. The Greek word for erotic love is eros, and it's a, it's a love that seeks to find satisfaction. That we're longing to feel filled in a variety of ways. And when we step outside the bounds of sexuality that the scriptures have in place, it's usually us looking for fulfillment and trying to find it in all these varieties of place. But what Jesus has declared, what the Father in Proverbs has declared by trying to implement all these different body parts is telling us that our following of Jesus has to be an undivided union, that we can't break areas of our lives down of like, okay, I'll submit to you here, but not over here. That we have to want wisdom, not simply just knowledge, which is information. But wisdom encompasses both the information, the want to, and the action to apply it in our lives. Or to say it slightly differently, it includes our head, our heart, and our hands. Our thoughts, our desires, and our actions. Augustine was a bishop in North Africa between the years of 300 and 400 AD. And he came to faith around the age of 31. But before he came to faith, he was a brilliant teacher in rhetoric. And had all these erotic sexual desires and found pleasure in them, but never fulfillment. And he, when he finally came to faith, he writes in one of his writings this phrase about the Christian life. He says, the whole life of the good Christian is a holy longing. That is our life to be trained by our longing. 
that it's learning to desire the right thing in the right way. Or to say it slightly differently is medical doctor John Thompson says like this about in his book on desire, before we're thinking creatures, we are desiring and then habit forming creatures. That our life in much of the way that this father is concerned not necessarily about his son's activity first, but concerned about teaching him how to love and want the right things. And this is why he tells this dramatic story that goes like this, starting in verse six. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice. I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street corner near her house, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and of darkness. I want to point out here that the father is not speaking about his son specifically, but he's telling this dramatic story in a time without uh, movie theaters or television shows. He's telling this dramatic story about a type of individual. And the type of individual, he gives them three names in one verse. In verse seven, he says that they are the simple, the youths, and a young man. So the father calls out a type of person. This could be a type of female as well, but a type of person who is the simple, the used. They're unlearned, untrained, untaught on how to navigate the pitfalls of life. And like we've already said, but the father is trying to get the son to understand that it's not only about what he does, but what he thinks and what he wants in his life. And he's getting ready to read this speech or recite this speech from Lady Folly that's going to actually reveal some of the son's deep longings, which are corrupted and need to be trained as well. And we've pointed this out every single week, but Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly are not depicting real life females, that not all females are inherently folly or evil, nor are they all full of wisdom and good. That these are just what the author writes and chooses to use. He depicts them as women in this speech to help the first century or the original listeners understand what he's talking about. And so when the father says this or points this out, it leads me to the question at least of, well, should we just be like the Stoics and say that all of our emotions, all of our desires, they're the bad things. We need to just pray them away. Like we should just think and do Like, let's not want anymore, especially when it comes to our sexual desire. Should we just not like just let's just get rid of those. Like, let's just think and do. Let's not let's not have desires and and wants. Like, should we just pray them away? Back to the campfire. So when I was growing up and and my dad taught me this method of building a campfire, I was curious when I got older, uh, like after I crested 20 and moved out of my mom and dad's house for never never to move back. And I was wondering like, did my dad teach me the right way to do it or the most effective way to build a campfire? I was just curious. So I Googled how to build a campfire step by step, you know, and when that wasn't helpful, it's like for dummies, you know, like in that regard. And I was, I wanted to know, like, I was genuinely curious that like, was the step-by-step method of building a campfire, was I taught the right way to do it? And when the first time I ever Googled this, uh, because I have taught on sexual desire before and used the same illustration, but 
The first time I found this out, I was genuinely shocked with the step-by-step approach. I went to the National Forest Association's website, you know, Smokey the Bear, he's concerned, don't burn down the forest. Uh, So he wants you to know a step-by-step method because if you misstep on a fire, like, what are you going to do then? Like, you kind of, you're done. You got to let it burn and try to put it out somehow. Like, it's not how to build a fire. It's like step-by-step putting out a fire. So he wants you to do it in the right order. And I even went to REI's website, you know, real outdoorsman-y website of like step-by-step, like how to build a fire. And then I went to some other credible looking source blogs of like step-by-step how to build a fire. And like what I found is they may have altered from steps two to seven, but step one was exactly the same every single time. And I was shocked that it wasn't like gather firewood. Like I was like, I felt like that's an important step in you know, making a campfire, like you need something that burns. Step one wasn't even like, make sure you got like something to start that thing with, like matches or striking stone. Or if you're like me, like once you see one spark, you want to make sure you can get it going. So you get some lighter fluid and like, let's get the, I'm not spending my, my whole night, you know, getting this fire started. Like I'm making sure it starts. But rather step one, whether you're on the beach, in the woods or on your back porch is make sure you build or have a fire ring, that you actually need a context which is appropriate for this fire to burn in. And if we would light this fire on stage right here, you would evacuate. You would leave because this fire is not in its proper context. If I lit this on fire in this solo stove, you may not think I'm very smart, But some of you would stay and be like, huh, we should probably not do this with our insurance agent in the room, all right? Like, this is not wise. But it's in a context, it makes you feel safe. And what Smokey the Bear knows, what the Father in Proverbs knows, and what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in his teaching on lust and adultery, knows, is that your desire is a fire. Your desire is a fire. And it is appropriate in the proper context. But when it gets taken out is when it has the potential to ruin your life. This is why the father is so concerned, not just about his son's activity, but what his son actually longs for and wants in his life. And Jesus is concerned with the exact same thing in his sermon on the mount. When he teaches that anyone who wants another that is not their spouse, that's when they've committed adultery in their heart. But this young man in Proverbs chapter seven, he has made a misstep because of the context. Notice that he goes by her house. He goes to the corner where she is. Now, the question that you might ask is, well, is he doing this intentionally? We don't know. Does he know that she lives there? We don't know. Is it by accident and he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time? We don't know. We don't know his intentions in this, but we do find him in the wrong place at the wrong time. What your grandma and grandpa told you that nothing good ever happens after dark, they were right because this is exactly where the young man finds himself. And the clearest parallel in this text to our modern era is internet pornography. That whether 
seeking it out or happened to you accidentally. And the culture would like us to think that this is only an issue that young boys or young men struggle with. But in one study done by Barna Research Group on online pornography, this is a direct quote pulled from that study done last year. It says nearly three quarters of young adults, that's 71%, male and female. And half of teens, 50%, male and female, come across what they consider to be porn at least once a month, whether they were seeking it out or not. Didn't have to be searching for it. Didn't have to be hunting it down, weren't even on a scandalous social media profile. It found them. Proverbs 7 verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. I won't break down that first word because you already know what that means. And if not, that'll just bring some interesting conversations on the way home. But the next phrase, the last phrase, the bolded phrase in verse 10, wily of heart. Some of you may be like, what, is, what exactly does that mean? Wily of heart. If you're reading out of the ESV, most likely there's a footnote there that at the bottom of that footnote, it says guarded in heart. And the word and the phrase guarded in heart, most of the times in the Bible is used in a good way, a positive way, like guard your heart. You know, don't give it out freely. But in this context, that's not at all what is intended. This is a very negative connotation. In fact, the NIV, if you're reading out of that, says she has crafty intent. Meaning that her intentions are not known to this young man that she is encountering. And sex is supposed to be a personal sharing, a deep knowing of one man and one woman who have been joined together by God. One of the Old Testament words for the sexual act is yada, which simply is the English word K-N-E-W, knew. Like in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, Cain. Now the question that you may be asking is like, was God just a little shy and embarrassed and wanting to keep the Bible PG? Like he just needed to say it and like insinuate like, you know, Adam knew his wife. It's okay to laugh, I promise. All right? I know it's a tense moment. Is he trying to keep the Bible a little PG, a little less explicit? Like, you know, we know we're going to be, you know, children's books made out of this thing too. So we got to keep it, you know, like we'll just kind of hint around. The, the adults will pick it up. Or rather is... The original design and designer of sex intending it to be such an intimate, such a beautiful, such a passionate, such a knowing of one husband and one wife that we don't fully understand the depth of sexual intimacy. Because that same word, yada, is used in the book of Exodus in chapter 2 like this, in this context. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came from, from slavery, came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Same word, very different context. This context was describing that God was so intimately aware of their pain that he had not left them in the midst of their misery. He knew. 
He was aware, he was involved. But this humanistic representation of folly in Proverbs chapter seven, she is guarded, she is wily, she does not reveal her intent because her desires are not for a deep intimate knowing, rather they're for a simple physical act that comes nothing close to the original design. And she does not want this young man to be aware of any of that. And may we not believe the cultural lie as whether you're single, searching, or married, may you not believe the cultural lie that with other relationships that are outside the marriage covenant that you should see if there's a spark. Let's see if there's some passion. Let's see if we could stoke the fire a little bit to keep with the analogy. Because if you do that, folly is coming after you, the simple one. And this is how folly acts. Verse 11. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. With a bold face she comes to him. I've offered sacrifices. Today I've paid my vows. So now I have come to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I've found you. I've spread out my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, with aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us fill our love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And in this moment, when the young man has been captured by Lady Folly. She was just there. It was easy access, if you will. The trap was laid out and he took the bait. And many who I've sat with who've fallen into sexual sin in a variety of different means explain something to this extent, like, I didn't mean to, I, I, don't, I don't even, I just happened. I was just clicking around and there it was, it was just there. It was late. It was just a simple relationship at the gym. I, I thought nothing of it. And then one thing led to another, or in a le- less sexual way of, I didn't mean to say it like that. I ruined that relationship. I just shared that post. I didn't think they would take it like that. How'd you get into this debt? I don't know. I just went to the store. I just swiped the card and it was like a blur. It was easy. It was just there. It's folly. And right at this moment, at the end of verse 21, when he has been got, it's almost as if the father with this erotic language has almost aroused him in some way. Painting this picture that with the smells the sights of the bedroom, the length of the romance. This is exactly what he wanted. But he takes this hard shift in verse 22 and it goes dark really fast. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes into the slaughter, as a stag caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. The father says to the son, son, if you are simple, if you don't see intentions, if you 
can't figure this thing out, if you can't get your loves in the right direction, if this actually didn't sicken you to read or hear, but this uh, excited you at some level, you are like an ox headed to slaughter. Slow, painful images of an ox heading into a slaughterhouse should be in your mind right now. Or you will be like a stag, that's a male deer, a buck. And the scene is a buck steps out into the clearing, one simple release of the bowstring, squeeze of the trigger. An arrow or a bullet piercing through the air until it pierces its liver. Or like a bird who rushes into the thing that will end its life. That's you, that's me. If we're the simple, that's us. Now the question is, is like, well, I know many people who have made mistakes in sexual sin and they didn't physically die. Like, seems a little dramatic. Seems a little overdone. And what I, but what I believe the father is meaning to get across here to his son in this moment by this strong language is to help the son understand that in these moments with this kind of sin in our life, once we realize what has happened, the damage is done. It doesn't mean it's ill-forgivable, but there are many other types of temptation that you can be halfway down that road and be like, whoa, 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 I'm, I'm turning around and going back. But in this situation, he has been got. And by the time he realizes the impact of his decisions, they're done. It doesn't mean there's no coming back from it. It doesn't mean that grace of Christ cannot forgive it. But it it does mean that there is this damage, this impact to relationships, to his own life that have been done. And that would be difficult, nearly impossible to correct with other people in his life. And in this moment, it is so easy to think about other people, to either feel shame or guilt in this moment if you have sexual sin in your past, or if you know of someone, you're like, yep, they really need to be here for this one. But if you're thinking in those terms, you're the simple one. That's exactly where folly wants you to be, thinking this is for somebody else. Because the father transitions again in his closing comments of chapter 7 to verse 24 to say this. Now, oh, sons, plural. I could add daughters in there as well. Listen to me. Listen. Be attentive to my words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low. All her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol going down to the chambers of death. Notice the starting point again is not the morality that the father's like, make sure you do this, but not that. He says, don't let your heart turn aside. He says, long before your feet stray, your heart does first. This is a way of modeling Christian teaching parents for your kids learn to figure out how to teach your kids how to love the right thing. As James K.A. Smith says, we are or we become what we love. In this searching for satisfaction, Augustine writes another quote, probably his most popular one he's well known for, that says, my heart is restless until it rests in you. So what is the context, if you will, for our eros, our passionate love that seeks to find personal satisfaction? Where do we go? I'm glad you asked. I believe there's really three groups 
of people here that we need to apply this text in a three different ways. The first group are those of you who are currently living in sexual sin in some regard or another. In John chapter four, Jesus meets a woman at a well. And he talks to this woman, he learns about this woman, he actually knew everything about her. She had had five husbands, she was living with the sixth man who was not her spouse and tells her whole baggage, all the baggage about her past. And she has so much joy, she goes into town and tells, I met a man who knew me. Not physical intimacy, but he genuinely knew me. And her expression was worship. A fear that I have in preaching messages like this is that people will feel only guilt and shame and not understand that there is a Savior who knows you and still wants you. And don't believe the other cultural lies that if you're single or you're married, that your sexual sin doesn't actually really matter that much because there's a lot of other people doing a lot worse things. If you don't think it matters that your desires are disordered, you've built a fire ready to be ignited and placed it in the massively wrong context. You're standing in your house that we'll call your life, thinking, I mean, is it really that big of a deal? They're just images on a screen. I'm not even married yet. I'll take care of this, like, when I get married. I'll just stop. It's just a simple relationship at the office. It's just a book that it gets me a little excited. It's just, it's just a book, it's just pages, it's just words, it's just black and white. And you're standing in your house, your life, covering firewood with lighter fluid. If you're a little tense right now, you should be. With a match standing over your life with your desires in the wrong context. Somebody's hoping this goes out. Just playing games. It's not that big of a deal. <sighs> Breathe easy. The angst that you were feeling when lighter fluid was being doused over this wood and I pulled out a box of matches is the same angst that the father is trying to get his son to understand that it does matter your life does matter and just because that your firewood right now is in the wrong place does not mean that there's not forgiveness in the name of Jesus that what Christ desires to do in your life, if you're living in sexual sin right now, is for you to come to him because he yadahs you. He knows you, the real you, and still wants you. But all those other quotes that we've read up to this point, he wants to help train your longings 
to help you get down on your hands and knees with you and learn how to pick up this wood and put it back where it belongs. So that fire can burn in the right spot. Because just like a good campfire, just like good wood, it can smoke amazing barbecue, bring warmth and goodness to your life. Your desires have the potential in your life to ruin it or be the thing that drives you that when your desires are placed in God and he can light a fire in you for other people, for a passion, for a direction, for a vision for your life, you can have that eros passion where you can search and find fulfillment in the things where you can let it burn. But when it's out here, it'll take your life. It'll ruin every relationship possible. Some of you have experienced that kind of pain. You've experienced the kind of pain of trying to forgive someone who has done it to you or you're the one who had the fire in the wrong spot and you thought you were big enough and you were strong enough to handle it. But by the grace of Jesus, there is not guilt, but there is freedom in his name. It doesn't mean that there's not more work to be done. This isn't a process of learning to trust. But it's just a reality that in his name, there's not shame, but there's redemption. Second group of people, those of you who have sexual sin in your past, this isn't about shame, but Jesus rather is about redemption, a new story, a, a new future. And Jesus is also pretty clear. If you don't think you fall into group one or two, you are gravely mistaken. Because Jesus blows up the obedience of this passage and other passages in the Old Testament to say, you think it's just your acts. But I actually say that if you have innate desires that are wrong, that you've committed adultery in your heart. Stop being a Pharisee. And rather seek to experience Christ's redemption in every area of your life. And by the spirit of God's power, become noble people. You may be thinking like, okay, what in the world does nobility have anything to do with this sermon? And how is this the application point? It's simple because the word noble or nobility has two definitions. The first definition is to be nobility by rank of birth. That you're a prince or a princess because your daddy or mama is the king or the queen. That's all it means. But there's a second definition in Old Testament language of Hebrew. It means to have a higher than average moral principles, to live by more than the status quo of the culture, to value, to honor, to celebrate and respect other people, to be noble. And Isaiah 32, eight would be a wonderful verse to memorize for this context. It says this, but he who is noble plans noble things and on noble things he stands. Let me say it again. But he who is noble plans noble things and on noble things he stands. You don't need to be a Bible scholar to figure out if one word is in one verse three times, it's probably important. Seek by the spirit of God's power to be people of nobility. And the third group of people, 
the sons and the daughters that Proverbs 7 was addressed to. What's insane about this passage is it's written by Solomon who had more sexual failures than probably anyone. Too many wives and sexual partners to count. And he's writing this like, son, you gotta listen. To those sons and daughters that are yet to really live much of life, listen to this. And even many of us in this room, this is what we need to do and understand that we need to predecide. Predecide what you'll learn to love. Predecide how you'll respond in situations before you're placed in them. Predecide to invite accountability into your life before you need it. And predecide to be honest in those relationships. I'm not naive to think that a message like this doesn't hit all of us in a slightly different way. We're going to enter into a prayer time now just to invite the Holy Spirit in this place to provide healing and help in this. But I want to give you two things before we enter into a prayer posture. The first thing is we have prayer team members on the front row. If you would enjoy or like someone to pray with you during this time or even after we close, they'll stick around after the service as well. And the second thing is, is if you need more intensified help or healing we would love to provide we have living well counselors that uh, house office space in our building um, almost every day of the week you can simply go to jcsignup.com and just hit I need counseling and that'll take you to where you need to go or just come talk to one of our pastors or elders right after we're done we'll be hanging out around here or you can meet us at the welcome desk so if you would just get into a prayer posture Would you invite the Holy Spirit into the three areas that this Father reads off? Just to remind you and allow this to wash over you, we talked about our head, our heart, and our hands. He says, son, keep my words as the apple of your eye. Bind them to your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. You, in your own words, could you pray to the Holy Spirit right now on maybe one or maybe all of those that would you respond in a posture of humility to say, Holy Spirit, would you help me live out your word in such a way that it first starts in my heart, that would you help me learn your word and your teachings and wisdom in such a way where I'd write them on the tablet of my heart that you would help me train my desires and what I want, what I love. Or maybe for you, it needs to simply start in the action. Jesus talked about doing extreme things to get rid of sin. In Matthew chapter five, he talks about like dismemberment. If your hand caused you to stumble, cut it off. What is the extreme measure 
that you need to go to this week to get sin out of your life so your desires can be starting to be trained. Would you pray over your thought life, your family's thought life, your kids' thought lives, your friends' thought lives, God? Would you pray that God would allow only pure motives and thoughts into their brain? The Father closes out in Proverbs 7 to say, don't go down her path. Don't stray, it says in verse 25, into her path. Would you pray fervently and desire the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in such a way that to help you choose the right path? Holy Spirit, help us want your wisdom and your words and love you above all other things in our life with our head with our heart with our hands with all of our longings God would you help us learn what it means to train them under your spirit's guidance and power for those held slavery by sexual sin either in their present or in their past God would you provide healing for them would you do what only your spirit's work can do and Make the hurting whole, to mind the broken, to sit with them because you know them. You know their hurt. You're acquainted with their pain. For those processing the pain of another, another's actions, God, would you make them acquainted that you know their pain as well? Jesus, you are our Lord, you are our master, God, and we desire to walk the path that leads to life. Holy Spirit, would you continue to move and work all week? And may those who have been encouraged and challenged by you to take action steps to seek out additional help, God, may they follow through before they leave this place today. In Christ's name. Amen. Just a, a reminder that our...